Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Gadget Grimlers. This one, The Cinnamon Solution, The Murder of Linda Bailey Brown. Thank you, Matt, for writing it. I've never read this before. That's the format of the show. I got a big in red here saying, do not read. <laughs> so I'm going to read it. Uh, okay. 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 I mean, I can read it. Matt's just saying that the intro is really long because it's essential backgrounds and that my patience is required, which also means your patience is required, dear audience, unless I decided to skip over it. But given that Matt specifically told me not to... <laughs> I guess I won't. Here we go. Although Orange County, California is typically known for its nearly year-round bright sunny days, the early morning of March the 19th, 1985 was a bitterly cold anomaly. It was about to feel much colder the residents of Garden Grove. From here, within a sleepy neighborhood where tragedies rarely happen, a call was placed to police at around 3 a.m. It stated that a homicide had been committed at 12.55.1 Ocean Breeze Drive. Ocean Breeze Drive sounds nice. I feel like there can be this opposite correlation where you hear someone that sounds really, really nice and then it's really, really nasty. And then you'll hear like a place called like some terrible name and you're like, oh, it's really nice, you know? Except for places like Scunthorpe. There's places that are like Slough. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, they don't sound very nice. And they aren't. As a night patrolman for the... I'm sorry if anyone listening is from Scunthorpe or Slough. I don't think I've ever been to Scunthorpe. I've just heard that it's not very nice. I've been, I've been to Slough. I used to work near Slough. Um, Slough's not great. As a night patrolman for the Garden Grove Police Department, Officer Darrow Halligan was accustomed to responding to late-night calls. Yet even during a time when violent crime was on the rise nationwide, homicide calls on his shift were rare. His stomach was in knots as he pulled up to Ocean Breeze Drive, expecting the worst. When he located the home, however, he was shocked to find that it appeared unremarkable and ominously peaceful from the outside. Had he just been cruising through the neighborhood as part of his regular patrol, nothing would have seemed out of place in the slightest. As Halligan pulled into the driveway, the home's front door swung open, and a short, heavyset man in his mid-thirties stepped into the doorway. When Halligan approached the door, you could see the man's face was streaked with tears and he was shaking. Behind him, a young girl stood in a similar state, sobbing uncontrollably. She held a crying infant to her chest for comfort, but the baby would not stop wailing. The homeowner's name was David Brown. The girl was David Brown's sister-in-law. So that's his... Oh, this is always so complicated. David Brown's... The girl was his sister-in-law, so it's his wife's... Sister. Right. <laughs> I don't know why this... It's very early in the morning. This is the first thing I did after getting to work and I haven't even had this coffee yet. <laughs> it's like Simon's sister-in-law's not that complicated. <laughs> but my brain is slow right now. It does feel foggy. It doesn't feel right. And the child was David's daughter, Crystal. David had been the one to call 911. He told Halligan, I think my wife's been shot. She's in the bedroom, but I'm afraid to look. Acting quickly, Halligan ordered David and Patty to have a seat on the living room sofa as he pulled out his flashlight and pistol and moved down the hallway toward the master bedroom. Inside, he found David's wife, 23-year-old Linda Bailey Brown, lying on the bed in a pool of her own blood with two gunshot wounds in her chest and her eyes half open. The majority of that blood had come from the gunshot wounds, but some of it had seeped from between her lips. A 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver with a two-inch barrel lay on the carpet beneath Halligan's feet. Careful not to disturb the scene too much, Halligan leaned over the bed and touched Linda's neck, feeling for her pulse, but he felt nothing. However, believing she may still be alive because her body was warm to the touch, he put his ear close to her mouth, listening for breathing as he watched her chest closely. For signs of movement, he detected neither. By this point, other officers had arrived on the scene, and the bedroom quickly began to fill. Five officers in total crowded inside the tiny room, but none of them felt qualified to attempt CPR. Um, she's not breathing. Her heart has stopped. 
it's been a while, and she has two gunshot wounds in her chest, which have caused enough damage for, like, blood to come out of her mouth. Is CPR really necessary at that point? Do you, do you really want to just disturb the crime scene so much? Because that person, I mean, they're clearly dead. It was obvious to everyone that if the woman was somehow still alive, she wasn't. She wasn't. She didn't have a pulse. She wasn't breathing. She's dead. The injuries she had sustained were far beyond anything they were capable of treating. They would have to wait for paramedics. Plus, they didn't want to touch anything out of fear of contaminating the crime scene while waiting for detectives to arrive. When paramedics finally did enter the bedroom, after several more tense minutes, they pushed past the officers and ran to Linda. Like Halligan, they were having trouble determining if Linda was still alive or not. Wait, I, why is the trouble determining whether she's still alive or not? She's warm because she just hasn't cooled down yet. She's got two giant gunshots in her chest, blood out of her mouth. There's no breathing. There's no heartbeat. When one of the paramedics heard what they thought sounded like a shallow, raspy breath, they decided to err on the side of caution. Immediately, they began administering CPR, and as they did, they loaded Linda into an ambulance and transported her to the nearby Fountain Valley Community Hospital, where doctors and nurses worked to save her. Which... What, what sort of magical medicine is this? She's very dead. Oh, but did I miss something? This seems very fatal. However, nothing could be done. Linda Bailey Brown was pronounced dead on March the 19th, 1985 at 4.26am. While all of this was happening across town, Halligan and the other officers inside the home on Ocean Breeze Drive were interviewing David and Patty, who both said that the person responsible for Linda's death was the home's fifth and final occupant, David's 14-year-old daughter from a previous marriage, Cinnamon Brown. Oh my lord, you're what? Who at that moment was missing. David hadn't been home at the time of the murder, but according to Patty, Cinnamon had tried to kill her before killing Linda, but she had fled the home before police arrived. Cinnamon's reason for doing this would be explained to the officers over the next few hours, as they all tried to wrap their heads around how something like this could have happened. Cinnamon's a weird name, isn't it? Like, I feel like Cinnamon is an appropriate name for one of those dogs that people put in a, a handbag and carry around. It's like, oh, is this Cinnamon? <laughs> but like, for a human? Cinnamon? I'm sorry to all the Cinnamons listening. Love you. As officers probe for information, they learned that the members of the Brown households and their relationship to one another was unique, to say the least. David Brown, the family's patriarch, was 36 years old. That's my age. I'm 36 years old. Me and David. <laughs> That's all we've got in common. I guess I'm the patriarch of my family, which is, that just means you're the man. <laughs> and my, my wife is the matriarch. That's right. It sounds like very much like some succession sh right? Like that, the dude, the, the Scottish dude in that show, he's like the patriarch. But in reality, it's just like, yeah, you just, just the, the, the oldest dude. <laughs> okay. But his now deceased wife was only 23 at the time of her death. That's quite a bit younger. How do you, how do you work it out? Half their age plus seven? 15 to 18 plus 7, 25. Oh, bit too young. Bit too young. Yeah, it's one of those ones where if she was like 26, you'd be like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but 23, you're like, it's a bit young. It's the half your age plus seven is amazing. Which was a substantial age gap of 13 years. Crystal Brown, the baby, was David and Linda's only child together. Patty Bailey, Linda's younger sister, was only 17, but she lived in David and Linda's home because her and Linda's mother, Ethel Bailey, was an abusive alcoholic. She had lived with them for seven years since she was 10 years old. Cinnamon Brown was David's daughter from a previous marriage, who had been living with David full-time ever since Cinnamon and her mother, Brenda, had gotten into a heated argument months earlier. However, because Cinnamon's relationship with David, Linda, and Patty was also strained, Cinnamon actually slept inside a trailer that was parked in David and Linda's backyard, a trailer that other officers were searching as David relayed this information. I know that sounds bad, but it also sounds kind of cool. Like, if I was a kid, 
And my parents are like, you can stay in the house or you can stay in your own trailer in the garden. I'd be like, I'm staying in the trailer. That sounds awesome. My own space. I'm a kid. Yes. Uh, it's probably less awesome when it's like winter and you're just freezing. Hey, well, this is in California, isn't it? I'd, I'd live in that trailer. I'd be like, yes, yes, yes. Got a little kitchen, little bathroom. That'd be awesome. The reason for this arrangement, according to David, was that Cinnamon was the black sheep of the family who had anger issues, suffered from depression, and was unwilling to accept help from anybody, including professional help from a psychiatrist. David, that's really harsh. Wait, is Cinnamon... Uh, David will have Cinnamon and her mother. Cin okay, so sorry, there's so many characters. He is, She is his daughter. <laughs> the police are like, why does she live in the trailer in the garden? Oh, she's really angry and depressed. <laughs> David, that's not good fathering. For seemingly no reason, she would often throw tantrums, lash out at those who cared for her, and threaten to take her own life. This behavior had driven a wedge between her and almost everyone else in their family, including those living inside the home on Ocean Breeze Drive. I mean, fair enough. And it is also harsh, right? Because it's like, yeah, you need to get... It does sound like she needs psychiatric help. And she's like, no. Isn't she 17, though? How old is she? I think she's 17. Nope, that's Patty Bailey. That's Linda's younger sister. How old is Cinnamon? 14. Dude, she's 14. Just get her to a psychiatrist. Be like, I, I don't want to go to the psychiatrist. Well, guess what? You're going because you're not an adult and I'm in charge. You'd be like, Dad, I don't want to. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but that's what's happening. That's it. You know, until they're 18, unless they get emancipated, you're calling the shots, David. Do your job as a dad. Basically, David said Cinnamon was always causing problems and he was left playing referee more times than he could count. You're the dad, David. That's part of the king job cinnamon and linda had never gotten along but her behavior had become so bad recently wait the fuck is linda i need like a fucking family tree for these fucks. i mean they're all wonderful people i'm sorry i just got upset at myself really linda is the sister-in-law so she's an adult 17 oh she's not an adult but she's the sister-in-law okay we got cinnamon who's the 14 year old kid of david from the previous marriage david's 36 his wife whose name i've forgotten the main person in today's episode called Linda. She was 23 and she's dead. She also had a kid who the sister, Linda, 17, was holding. Right. Everyone else following? Clear as mud? Crystal clear to me now. We figured out the family tree. Just in time to introduce some new characters. <laughs> David felt forced to kick her out of the home at Linda's request, which is why she slept inside the trailer most nights. She's 14. What the f she did come inside the main home for meals and to watch television and play card games with the family when everyone was on speaking terms, but that was becoming an increasingly rare occurrence. Understanding this, the officers then both asked David and Patty individually what events had transpired within the home in the hours before the murder. First, David said that he had not been home at the time of the murder and that Cinnamon had been not acting any differently than usual the past few days. The previous day had been difficult, albeit average. He said that the family had visited with David's parents, Arthur and Manuela Brown, and that Manuela and Linda had gotten into an argument over how baby Crystal was being raised. Unfortunately, Crystal cried whenever she wasn't being held, and Linda was attempting to break this habit using the cry-it-out method, which meant that she would not go to Crystal when she cried, so long as she was sure the child had been fed and did not need to be changed. Manuela did not agree with this style of parenting in the slightest, and she voiced her concerns often, including that night. David had agreed with his mother, which soured Linda's mood by making her feel like everyone in the room was against her. After this, David felt this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is. You can't, David, no. You don't agree with your mother on this one. You agree with your wife. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your opinion is, David. You're just like, yes, dear. 
I'm with you. That's what you do, David. It's not complicated. Don't side with your mother. After this, David and the rest of the family returned home. David apologized to Linda, and the pair made up. They had sex at around midnight and all seemed fine. However, David said that he could still couldn't sleep because of the slight lingering tension between them. At around 2 a.m., David said that he'd gotten up and left Linda asleep in their bed. He had driven down to the street to the local Circle K convenience store to buy himself a soda and an apple pie, hoping that the drive and food would clear his head. <laughs> I can't believe people actually do this. This is like, I live in a city. There's there's 24 stuff, our, our, our stuff open all the time. If I can't sleep, I don't think there's ever been a time I've been like, yeah, okay, I'll get dressed. I'll get in the car. I'll take a drive down to the store. Like, no, I just would like, oh, okay, just going to read for a little while in bed. Maybe I'll watch some telly. <laughs> going out and getting an apple pie in the middle of the night. I mean, it's always something that I think, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do that sometime. And I never do because it's insane. He had then driven to the beach to sit and listen to the waves and smell the ocean as he ate his food. That does sound nice. California does sound quite nice, doesn't it? This did the trick, and about half an hour later he started back home intending to get some sleep. But this is when everything went horribly wrong. David said that when he arrived just before 3am, Patty was standing just inside the front door waiting to greet him. She was distraught and already holding Crystal in her arms the way that she would be when Officer Halligan first arrived, trying in vain to comfort the child as they both cried. Urgently, she revealed to David that Cinnamon had killed Linda and tried to kill her as well. David had then immediately picked up the phone and dialed 911. At this point, the police turned their attention to Patty, who was still holding Crystal in her arms. She corroborated David's story about the previous day, his and Linda's arguments, and how he left home before the murder. However, she did not agree with David's claim that Cinnamon had been acting normally. Patty said that Cinnamon's behavior had been increasingly strange the prior few days, and the hours before the murder had been the strangest. Although, as stated, Cinnamon normally slept in the backyard trailer, she had been sleeping on a cot in Patty's room the past two nights, which Patty knew meant something was wrong. Cinnamon obviously needed to talk to her about something, but hadn't been able to bring herself to admit it. Patty said that she attempted to make herself available by approaching Cinnamon while she was watching MTV in the family's living room at around midnight, but Cinnamon would not tell her what was wrong, so she let it go. Then, at around 11.45pm, Patty said that she had gotten up to go to bed. As she did, Cinnamon followed her down the hallway and asked if she could help her with something important. She sounded distressed, so Patty agreed. Cinnamon then pulled out the small revolver that had been found beside Linda's bed, presented it to her, and asked her if she could teach her how to use it. Bro, this girl's 14, but it's like, hi, can you teach me how to use this gun? What's it, aunt? It's not their relationship. It's the, the, the sister-in-law's, yeah, aunt. Startled, Patty asked her why, but Cinnamon only said that she needed it for protection. Um, she's 14. Get her a fucking taser or something. She said she was concerned about the break-ins that had been happening in the neighborhood and wanted to be able to defend herself if something unexpected happened because her trailer did not have an alarm installed. Somewhat satisfied by her response, Patty had shown Cinnamon how to use the gun! What the fuck, Patty, what are you doing? explaining that she needed to pull the hammer back until it clicked and then pull the trigger. Patty wasn't concerned about where Cinnamon had gotten the gun because she knew it belonged to David. He had guns stashed all over the house after all. Bro, <laughs> what are you doing? And the fact that she could get her hands on this gun is insane. She's 14. If you've got guns, that's fine. But you've got to keep them locked away or at least somewhere where your children can't get them. Have you not seen Stargate? In that episode, that's, that's that Stargate where Jack's son accidentally kills himself with the with his gun and he like it haunts him and you're like oh my god yeah don't let that happen lock up your guns she planned to tell him about it the following morning when everyone woke up but she would never get the chance after patty and cinnamon parted ways to go to bed 
Patty in her room, Cinnamon in her trailer. Patty said that she was awoken at around 2.30 a.m. by a loud bang right beside her head. When she opened her eyes, she saw Cinnamon standing over her with a revolver in hand pointed directly at her. Cinnamon had shot at her, but she missed. What the f***? Be like, bang. What? What is going on? You gotta act so fast right then. Too terrified to move, Patty said that she'd laid perfectly still and watched as Cinnamon exited her bedroom, marched down the hallway, and fired two more shots with a brief pause between them. After this, baby Crystal began crying loudly and did not stop. David had yet to return, so the whole rest of the house was deathly quiet. After a tense minute of shock, Patty said that she came to her senses, sat up, threw off the covers, and then crept to the bedroom door and peered into the hallway. Seeing nobody, she ran to Crystal's nursery, grabbed the child, and quickly returned to her own bedroom. She didn't exit the room again until David returned home some 30 minutes later, so she had no idea where Cinnamon had gone, although she thought that she might have seen her fleeing out the back door as she rescued Crystal. She then stayed inside the bedroom until she heard David's keys jingling at the front door. After she told David what had happened, he called 911 and the two of them had waited at the front door for the police to arrive because David could not bring himself to check on Linda himself. He had an intense phobia of blood and was terrified to see his wife's body. Bro, what are you doing? I'd go in there immediately, just in case there's some chance that she's still alive and that you can do something about that. What's wrong with you? It's like, oh no, I'm afraid of blood. Stop being a coward. I mean, look, I know this is a terrible situation, but you've got to act, bro. Come on. So all in all, aside from the discrepancy about Cinnamon's mood before the murder, which could easily be discounted for multiple reasons, David and Patty's stories lined up perfectly. I get the feeling that this is a problem, like David's, uh, David, Matt, who wrote the episode, is all like, yes, the story's lined up perfectly so far, because we're like 10% of the way into the episode or something. No, maybe like 20%. So there's, there's definitely more to this story, isn't there? The stories line up perfectly. Cinnamon had killed Linda in her sleep and fled the home on foot. Learning all this, the police quickly decided that they were dealing with a very unique 14-year-old girl. It wasn't uncommon for teens to fight and argue with their family, especially a step-parent. However, the fact that Cinnamon had actually killed Linda was extraordinary. They needed to be on the lookout, put out a community safety alert, and begin canvassing the neighborhood at once before someone else got hurt. This type of situation rarely resolved itself without even more bloodshed, so they couldn't afford to take any chances. At the police's request, David provided detectives with the address of Cinnamon's mother's house and the names of her closest friends. They contacted them, hoping that one of them might have heard from her, but they had not. Soon, David's parents, Arthur and Manuela Brown, arrived to pick up Brady Crystal. David kissed his daughter goodbye and then began walking the police through the prior day's events yet again. This would be far from the last time he would be forced to relive these critical hours before his wife's death. As this morbid scene was playing itself out inside the home, other officers were still examining the backyard trailer that Cinnamon lived in. Overall, it looked exactly as you might expect any teenage girl's room to look, disorganized and messy. However, there was also a small dog running around that had defecated on the floor multiple times, causing the whole trailer to smell strongly of feces. Ugh. As they began stifting through the trailer's contents, one of the officers picked the dog up to take it outside. He placed it inside a large outdoor pen that housed several dog houses and the Brown family's other dogs. <laughs> These people have multiple dogs, okay. And then he noticed something alongside those other dogs. At 6am, mere hours after it began, the search for Cinnamon Brown was over as this officer discovered Cinnamon passed out inside one of the dog houses. She was curled up in the fetal position, covered in vomit and urine, and clutching a note that read, Dear God, please forgive me. I didn't mean to hurt her. Well, maybe you shouldn't have shot her twice. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Cinnamon. 
Seeing that the girl was still alive, Cinnamon was taken into custody and transported downtown to the police station where officers attempted to question her. However, it quickly became obvious that something was seriously wrong. Cinnamon could barely keep her head upright, her pupils would not focus, and she appeared to be having trouble breathing normally. Yo, you gotta take her to the hospital. Um, like, don't take her to the station. She needs to go to the hospital. And yeah, chain her to the bed, like handcuff her to the bed or whatever, but she clearly needs medical attention. When on-site paramedics examined her, they found that her blood pressure was so low it would not even register on the standard pressure cuff. Therefore, Cinnamon was rushed to the hospital at around 9.30am, where doctors learned that she had ingested three full bottles of medication in an apparent suicide attempt. They had to give her Ipecac syrup to induce vomiting until she passed out from exhaustion. Dozens of half-digested capsules came up during this, but she had already digested so many that it was unclear if she would live. Over the next three days, doctors worked tirelessly to stabilize her as she teetered in and out of consciousness. In truth, had Cinnamon not already vomited up the majority of the capsules inside the doghouse before police found her, she would have certainly died. It was pure luck that she had lived long enough to make it to the hospital for treatment in the first place. Thanks to the efforts of her doctors, she survived, but her troubles were far from over. Yeah, your troubles are definitely far from over. <laughs> you murdered someone. Oh, God. The following weeks came and went in a flash for Cinnamon and the rest of the Brown family. On June the 20th, 1985, Cinnamon was released from the hospital and placed into the custody of the California Youth Authority. She was housed inside Orange County's Juvenile Hall, where she was to remain until her trial began. And that trial was quick. You see, although Cinnamon claimed not to remember what she'd done on the night that her stepmother was killed, the evidence spoke for itself. The roar beside Linda's bed had Cinnamon's fingerprints on it. The bullets recovered from Linda's chest were matched to that revolver. The handwritten suicide note and confession had been penned by Cinnamon's own hands. Forensically, the case was locked down, and David and Patty's stories were corroborated when security footage from the Circle K convenience store proved that David was away from home at the time of the murder. A bullet hole discovered above Patty's bed also showed that Cinnamon had, in fact, fired at Patty as she slept. If this wasn't concrete enough, Cinnamon had also rendered a confession to one of her nurses while barely lucid in the hospital. Testimony from this nurse at trial sealed Cinnamon's fate. I don't think you should be taking the word of someone who's, like, hopped up on all sorts of drugs as, like, fact and admissible in trial. That seems like a bit much. How about we just rely on all of this forensic evidence? But I do get the feeling that this is too weird. Like, I feel like there's a bit of a setup going on here or something really, there's more to it. And partly that's because we're only just at the, you know, we're not near, we're like a quarter of the way through. There's gotta be more to it. Otherwise it'd be like, done and not a particularly interesting episode, just a sad episode. On September the 13th, 1985, when she was only 15 years old, Cinnamon Brown was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to 27 years in prison. Um, she's, she was 14, though, when she committed the crime. Doesn't that mean she, she'll, she, she can't be, she can't have 27 years in prison. She's a kid. Like, doesn't she get let out when she's 18 or 21 or whatever it is in America? Her entire family was in the courtroom that day to hear the sentence read out. Her mother, Brenda, was beyond consolation. Several days later, Cinnamon was placed at the Ventura School, a youth corrections facility, where she was expected to remain for nine years until she turned 25. After this, she'd spend the rest of her sentence in a California adult women's prison. She'd be eligible for parole in 2012, at which time she'd be 42 years old. This is kind of f***ed up. Don't you have laws in America for, like, people who commit crimes underage? Like, I don't know, in the UK, I think the criminal age responsibility is 12 or 10 or something like that. So she's criminally responsible. But she shouldn't face the same justice as an adult because she just doesn't have that mental capacity. 
And just like that, everything was over. The remaining members of the Brown family were left to pick up the pieces of their shattered lives as they asked themselves time and time again how something like this could have happened. Cinnamon had issues, they all knew that, but nobody could have ever imagined what those issues would ultimately lead to. Many people in the family blamed themselves, but there was ultimately nothing they could do to change the past. It was a tough pill to swallow, but there was little doubt in most people's minds that justice had been served. However, as the days and weeks inside Ventura School dragged on, Cinnamon came to a realization that would change the way she and everybody else thought about her case, about her trial, and about the murder of Linda Bailey Brown itself. In 1988, two full years after being convicted, she placed a call to the Orange County DA's office and told them a story that was so unbelievable it had to be true. Oh my god, here's the twist, isn't it? The only question was, since a day in court had already passed, would anybody else believe it? So on today's episode of The Casual Criminalist, we'll be examining the life of a person who may be one of the most loathsome and manipulative people that I've ever written about, despite his actions only leading to the death of a single person. And that would be Cinnamon's father, David Brown. Holy sh... Oh, I see. Was that the introduction? <laughs> We're half an hour in! <laughs> but it was a great introduction. And a vicious young man. Introduced to the world on November 16, 1952 in Phoenix, Arizona, David Arnold Brown was born into an exceptionally impoverished family, and although he would find great financial success during his later life, that fact would permanently color the lens through which he saw the world. When David was a toddler, his parents, Arthur and Manuela Brown, worked hard to provide for the eight children, of which David was the sixth. But they were never quite able to make ends meet. Arthur was a mechanic by trade, but he lacked ambition and business sense. The family had to move often, living in whichever backwater town he could find employment. Manuela was primarily a stay-at-home mother, as was common in the 1950s. God, it's got to be hard to, like, on a sometimes-employed mechanic salary, eight children? Did they have, like, I can't imagine they had better, like, social help back in the 50s. But she also worked whenever possible to supplement the family's income. This, unfortunately, did little to help them obtain any amount of financial stability. It was simply never enough. According to David, he and his siblings often went to bed hungry without dinner and wore hand-me-down clothes from relatives that were little more than rags. They all attended school regularly, but they rarely had the opportunity to make friends before packing their bags and saying their goodbyes because their family was always on the move. This lifestyle left David and his siblings lacking any real stability and caused him to feel like the only person he could rely on in life was himself. That feeling would also stay with him for the rest of his life. Unwilling to sit idly by and watch his family struggle, however, David began performing odd jobs around his neighborhood when he was just eight years old. He picked weeds, he mowed lawns, painted fences, and did anything else his neighbors were willing to pay him to do, which helped him and his siblings afford school supplies and basic necessities. That sounds very mature for an eight-year-old. This was amazing. If I was working at eight, I'd be like, what are you going to spend this money on? School supplies for me and my siblings. I'd be like, no, 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 no. Sweets. So many sweets. <laughs> This was a major point of pride for young David, and when he turned 11, he secured his first real job as a dishwasher at a local cafe, working alongside two of his older brothers. Here, he claims to have worked up to eight hours per evening on school nights and up to 16 per hour hours per day on the weekends. This ambition earned him quite a bit of money for the first time in his life, which helped him realize something very important about himself. Even from an early age, David understood that money was the most important thing in his life. Goddamn right, David. <laughs> no, I was also like, as a kid, I was definitely like, I, I don't know. It's like money makes the world go round. And when you're a kid, you just want like to buy like cool shit, like CDs, sweets, all of that stuff. So I was always like keen to work or like hustle, <laughs> get, get that money. Even from an early age, David understood that money was the most important thing in his life. Money allowed him to buy things which he considered to be the ultimate sign of success. Uh, I don't really agree with that. I just wanted to buy sweets. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it also allowed him to gift things to other people, which he saw as the quickest way to win them over. And it's like, oh, that, that instantly went from like nice sentence to read to being like, oh, manipulative. It's like he liked to buy things for people. Nice. So he could win them over. Not nice. <laughs> in his mind, there were few things the money couldn't do, so he dropped out of school when he was in the eighth grade to devote even more time to working. While some people have seen this as short-sighted, it worked out well for David, at least for a little while. Thanks to all those extra hours, he was able to purchase a new wardrobe, a motorcycle, and a record player, along with a collection of records. He also cleaned himself up, growing out and grooming a large pair of sideburns and a slicked-back pompadour hairstyle, effectively turning himself into the Fonz. <laughs> it's like, how are you going to tidy yourself up? Massive sideburns. The 50s, everybody. He started frequenting the stereotypical hangouts of the 1950s and 60s, like drive-in movie theaters, restaurants, where he would flash his cash while attempting to pick up women. And speaking of women, they were David's great other passion. David's first girlfriend was his mother's ex-husband's daughter. What the fuck? <laughs> his mother's ex-husband's daughter. Okay. <laughs> Dude, that's so confusing. I need like a family tree, Matt. Jesus Christ. <laughs> These guys. To answer your question before you even ask, no, their relationship was not incestuous because they were not biologically related. Although it was a bit strange because their families knew one another quite well, so it still triggers the ooh factor for me personally. I mean, it depends if they knew each other. I wish Matt just said they did, because they did. So yeah, it's a little bit low. <laughs> okay, dude, don't do that. According to Brenza, the thing that initially drew David to her was the fact that their situations were so similar. Like himself, she came from a large family and was remarkably poor because of it. As one of 11 siblings being supported by a single mother, she often went without basic necessities. She also had countless other half-siblings spread across California because her father apparently couldn't understand the difficult concepts that were monogamy and consoles. <laughs> David felt intense pity for Brenda and desired to save her from the tragic life that she was living the same way that he was trying to save himself. As for why Brenda was attracted to David, that was a bit more complicated. It was those sick sideburns, dude. It's like that guy, look at him with his motorcycle, his leather jacket, his sideburns, his dishwashing job. Yes, please. Of course, Brenda liked the fact that he had money and the fact that he used money to buy things for her, but she also said she was attracted to his personality. According to people who knew him, David had the nice, charming smile of a politician that made his otherwise ugly face appear almost handsome. <laughs> it's like, why do you like his personality? Charming personality. Nice smile. Offsets his hideous face. When he spoke through that smile, Brenda's young heart swam, and when he laughed, she couldn't help but laugh along with him. His mood was infectious, and he always seemed to know exactly what to say to make her smile. Even when he was feeling down, which happened often because of how difficult their lives were, he was still hard to dislike. When he complained that no one in his family loved him, she wanted desperately to make him feel better, because seeing him wallow in self-pity was heartbreaking. She grew to truly care for him, the way that David claims few people ever did. In short, he was her golden-hearted knight, her provider, and her lover. We need to talk about that last thing a little bit more. According to Brenda, David's sexual appetite was beyond insatiable when they were young. They had sex at least three times a day. Oh my god. Once in the morning, again in the afternoon, and her final time at night. <laughs> Dude. But Brenda... <laughs> That's a lot. But Brenda said that this number would have been even higher if David could have had his way. He would never have left the bedroom if he could have afforded not to. David took great pride in his sexual prowess and was reportedly never shy about discussing sex the way he was never shy about pulling out his wallet to impress everyone. He would often find ways to make normal conversations sexual and wasn't embarrassed about that in the slightest. David sounds like a really uncomfortable dude to be around. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, I was thinking about going for lunch. Lunch and sex? No, David! What? No! No, David! Stop it! <laughs> 
This was the first sign that he was a sex addict, but Brenda was unfortunately unable to recognize this fact. And there were other red flags about him as well that she could either not see or simply didn't want to see. First, David had a known jealous streak and would rarely let Brenda out of his sight when they were together. When she dressed for a date, he made sure to stay by her side the entire evening. If she had to use the restroom, he would follow her inside, stand behind the stall, and wait for her to finish. Bruh. <laughs> what are you doing? He would also insist that she do the same for him when he had to go. <laughs> what the f***, David? What is wrong with your brain? David's self-reported reason for this behavior was that the world was a dangerous place and Brenda needed to be protected. David also wouldn't allow her to have a driver's license or get a job for the same reason. So I have to say, when I was reading like the giant introduction that Matt wrote, wrote for this piece, and I was commenting about how David, you know, David, you got to do this thing as a dad. David, this is your responsibility. David, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I didn't want to be too harsh because it turned out, if it turned out like, what happens if David's like just a regular good guy in this story? He's just this like grieving husband. Or whatever. I didn't want to shit on him too hard, but now it's becoming clear that there's more to this. I do want to say in that introduction, I, I had my spidey sense f***ing tingling about this David dude. Just being like, it's this guy. It's this guy. I just didn't want to say it because if it wasn't him, but my spidey sense was well off for David. That shady mofo. Like, this is weird, dude. You got some weird sh going on in your life. What exactly caused this type of behavior in David is heavily debated, as if something like this couldn't actually ever be understood. But there are a few events that some people point to. Although it's not clear when it happened, David claimed to have been molested by a man in a park when he was young, around the age of 10. This is also around the time that he reportedly walked into a room where a close family member of his was attempting suicide. This Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's that's something that's never going to leave you and is going to fuck up your brain forever. This person was reportedly slicing their own wrists when David entered the room and he had been too stunned to react. He just stood there watching. Although later in his life, David rarely gave specific details about either of these encounters, those that knew him and knew the story said that both events had a profound impact on him. It's not clear what this effect was, but they said it changed him. David also claimed that his mother regularly beat him with the handle of a vacuum cleaner, but this too is unconfirmed. Brenda knew about these claims, but she never truly believed them herself because in addition to being extraordinarily controlling, David was also a known liar that exaggerated many aspects of his life. For instance, when looking for sympathy from those around him, he would fake an illness and exaggerate his known medical conditions. When he needed something from someone, his slight asthma would suddenly turn debilitating in a flash. I feel like asthma is like one of those things like, yeah, no asthma, or like, oh, back. It's like, will you help me move? Oh, my asthma. Oh, my back. <laughs> Life with Brenda In 1968, David and Brenda hit the road, leaving their families behind in search of a better life. They were both only 16. For over a year, they stayed in various hotels in California free of charge by working for those hotels by day and sleeping in spare rooms by night. They both claimed to be relatively happy during this time, but it was still a hard life because David, who was no longer working 16-hour days, was starting to feel impoverished yet again. In 1969, the couple packed their bags and headed east to Utah to where Brenda's grandmother lived in Salt Lake City. Just like his father had done his entire life, David was now following the money. He often worked in construction, however, this still did not earn him enough to live comfortably. Plus, he was about to need even more money because Brenda were about to incur an unexpected and very expensive surprise. At only 17 years old, Brenda was pregnant. In early January of 1970, David and Brenda returned to California to the town of Wilmington, and in May of that same year, they were legally married after receiving permission from their parents. Oh, because they're only 17. Okay, okay. Two months later, on July the 3rd, 1970, they welcomed their first and only daughter, Cinnamon Darlene Brown, the girl who would someday kill her stepmother in cold blood as she slept. 
According to those that knew the family, David absolutely loved Cinnamon to death. She was his pride and joy, his entire world, and he would do anything for her. However, he still needed to find a decent job to provide for her. Since returning to California, he'd been working as a gas station attendant, but that wasn't going to cut it. He needed to find a real career. At this point, the people in David's life already knew that he was naturally intelligent, but in April 1971, he got his chance to prove it. That year, David took his general equivalency exam. GED, which is used in America as a replacement for a high school diploma, despite never having attended a single day of high school. Is that allowed? He just never went? <laughs> David passed with flying covers, achieving a score that was higher than the national average in every single category. He placed in the 82nd percentile in literature, 79th in social studies, and 62nd in mathematics. Which is pretty impressive when you consider that he never studied this. After this, David used his GED to enroll in California's Work Incentive Program, where he hoped to learn to work with computers. He then studied at the Control Data Institute in Los Angeles, where he was trained in data recovery techniques for hard drives. Now, before we go any further, we need to remember what era we're talking about here. This was the early 1970s, so computers were still a relatively new invention, and even the large companies that adopted them rarely employed a full-time, dedicated IT department. If you were a small business, the likelihood was basically zero. That meant the services like data recovery were in high demand, and that the few shops that were able to provide that service raked in money hand over fist. They were also always in need of good technicians, so David was hired by a company called Century Data almost immediately after completing his course. David himself wouldn't start making large amounts of money for several more years, but the seed was planted, and it was only a matter of time before he finally had all of the money that he needed. But while his business prospects were improving, his marriage to Brenda was headed in the opposite direction. You see, despite the fact that Brenda was still agreeing to have sex with him at least three times per day, David was still unsatisfied. And he soon asked his wife for permission to begin dating other women on this side. Because she feared losing her husband permanently, Brenda agreed at first. However, like the vast majority of spouses who try to save their marriages in this manner, she realized that the arrangement would not solve anything. Yeah, this doesn't sound like it. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. I'm sorry. I don't, like 99% of the time, this isn't going to work. The first time she spotted David holding hands with another woman at a cafe, ferocious jealousy ignited in her chest, which made her call the whole thing off immediately. After this, she told David that she had changed her mind and she could no longer bring herself to allow it. In response, David said that he'd stop seeing other women, but he didn't. In the book If You Really Love Me by Anne Rule, the book from which most of the information about David's childhood and marriage to Brenda comes from, Brenda describes David in the following way. He was oversexed. That's the only way I can say it. He was always leaning out of the car or turning to look at women. He knew it made me mad, but he was obsessed. It didn't matter if they were young or old or whatever. I just couldn't stand it. David, you sound like a bit of a creepster, dude. He's just like leaning his head out the car window. He's like, woo woo, you know, like, it's like, dude, and his wife's fucking there. Bro, it's cringe anyway. It's, what's wrong with you? Soon after being forbidden to date other women, David began taking frequent hunting trips with his brother, but Brenda knew where they were really going. For her own sake, she tried to convince herself that she could put up with the cheating. In her mind, so long as David was attempting to hide his affairs, she could pretend they weren't happening and they could continue presenting themselves to the world as a happy family. But this strategy ended up blowing up in her face when David arrived home one day with a woman named Laurie Carpenter on his arm and divorce papers in his hand. David told her that he wanted her out of his apartment immediately, and they planned to take full custody of Cinnamon. Laurie would move in and raise the girl in Brenda's place. That is f***ed up. I've got another do not read here. <laughs> it's in red and it says do not read, but I'm in the middle of reading. Matt wants me to clarify that Laurie is a different person from Linda, 
Linda's the person who's murdered. Okay, so this is just another woman whose name begins with an L that David is, you know, going on with. At first, Brenda was so furious she couldn't see straight, but after calming herself down, she told David that she would never agree to a divorce. It was as simple as that. She hoped that if she just refused long enough, David would change his mind and leave Laurie when he realized that Laurie wouldn't make him any happier than she did. This didn't happen, though. Instead, David continued to date Laurie while living with Brenda and attempting to force her into a divorce, which made the entire situation extraordinarily volatile. Yeah, no sh, David. What are you up to, mate? Brenda stated around this time she became deathly afraid of David. While he had only been physically abusive toward her once throughout their entire five-year relationship. Bro. <laughs> no, no, no. He was only physically abusive to me once. <laughs> I feel like, Jesus Christ. It's like, number of times I've been physically abusive to my wife. King zero. <laughs> How hard is that? There was something about Jesus Christ only once. It's only once. <laughs> Uh, there was something about him that shifted after she refused to divorce him. I don't know why, but I had this terrible fear that he was going to smother me to death with a pillow while I was asleep. He never tried to as far as I remember, but I used to wake up unable to breathe, dreaming, maybe, that he had covered my face with a pillow. Unsure if she was in real danger or just overreacting, Brenda decided to err on the side of caution. One day while David was at work, Brenda packed up everything the family owned and enlisted help from her friends and family to move to a new smaller apartment across town. She then found work at a local shop and had family members babysit Cinnamon while she was away. Brenda lived like this for a while. However, when David discovered where she was working, he showed up at her job with a revolver and pressed it to her temple in front of her co-workers. He says, if I can't have you, then nobody can. David, you're the one that left. You wanted a divorce. Why are you smoking, David? Is it crack, David? Because something's wrong with your brain. Why exactly David went from demanding a divorce to showing up at Brenda's workspace with a gun is baffling to me, yes indeed. But Brenda later theorized that he didn't like the fact that she had left him. He wanted to be the one to leave her. David, it sounds like she did exactly what you wanted. You were like, we're getting a divorce, get out. And so she got out and David's like, don't leave! I wanted to make you leave! And it's like, David, you did make me leave. David, what's wrong with your brain? According to Brenda, she wasn't shocked when she saw the gun because she had been expecting something like this to happen. She knew he wouldn't just let her walk away with everything they owned and their daughter, but she also didn't believe that he would go through with killing her. She bravely called his bluff to quote her, I just didn't care. I told him to go ahead and shoot me because he'd never get away with it. The police would lock him up forever. I was just so tired of fighting him. He finally dropped the gun and walked away. But that was by no means the last time that she would see him. Several weeks later, David showed up outside her apartment with the same revolver in his hand and demanded that she return the jewelry that he had purchased for her throughout their marriage. He once again said that he was going to give everything she loved to Laurie and leave her with nothing. Brenda protested at first, but David pointed the gun at her again, and this time she believed that he would pull the trigger. He was waving it around like a madman, so she retrieved the jewelry for him as he had demanded. But he still wasn't satisfied. He wanted his old hunting rifle returned to him as well. At this point, Brenda froze. That rifle was her only means of protection, and having it by her bedside was the only way she could sleep soundly at night. She was terrified of allowing her obviously deranged husband to take her only means of protection. When David picked up the rifle, she took hold of the gun's forestock and tried to wrestle it from him, but he easily overpowered her. As David marched back to his car with the jewelry and rifle in his hands, Brenda followed closely behind him, grabbing desperately at the rifle as he held it high above his head and out of her reach. She probably doesn't have enough money to go and buy her own gun. But when some dude with a gun, who you think is going to shoot you, wants the gun, give him the gun, and then like somehow work out how to get a new way to protect yourself, a new gun or, or something. Because I do think you need that. 
Being so much smaller than he was, she had little chance of overpowering him. However, as he slid into the driver's seat, she saw an opportunity to wrap her fingers tightly around the gun's forestock yet again. David then tried to push her away, as he had done before, but he didn't have enough room to move effectively while seated. As they struggled, he cursed and screamed at her to let go. Then, unable to shake her off, he started the engine, threw the car into drive, and sped away, dragging Brenda down the street as she clung to the car's side-view mirror. She was then forced to let go and tumble to the ground below when David veered off the road, intending to ram her into a telephone pole. David. David, uh, my spidey sense was right about you, you psycho. Just before we continue with today's episode, our sponsor, Rocket Money. What does Rocket Money do? Well, have you ever looked at your bank statement and you're like, oh, you know, what, $10 here, $15 there, $25 there, and you're like, what is this for? Oh, it's for some like crazy subscription that I decided to join for like a month, two years ago, and they've been secret, I mean, not secretly, but they've been like taking money out of your accounts and you just can't be bothered to cancel because you might have to, you know, it's like you try to cancel something, it's like, oh yeah, you got to phone our helpline. And then you just phone the helpline and it's like you're listening to hold music for 45 minutes. And you're just like, oh, God, I'll just pay the $20 a month. Fine. And then it is there forever. Well, Rocket Money is your solution to that problem. They're a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitor your spending, and help you lower your bills. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you just cancel it with a tap. Boom, you're done. No getting on the phone with customer service. And honestly, getting on the phone with customer service if you're lucky after however long of a hold time, right? They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do, take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money will take care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and helps save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in cancelled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com casual. That's rocketmoney.com casual. Rocketmoney.com casual. And now back to today's episode. Life with Laurie David's divorce from Brenda was finalized in 1974, and on October the 4th of that same year, his marriage to Laurie Carpenter began. Shortly after their union, they moved into a small rental home in Riverside, California, where they attempted to start fresh and put David's messy divorce and the rocky start of their own relationship behind them. This was easier said than done. Unfortunately, against David's wishes, the judge finalized that he and Brenda's divorce had given her primary custody of Cinnamon, while David was only permitted to see his daughter on weekends. Good. <laughs> David's a psycho. He's like, I want the daughter with me. And the judge would be like, no, David, you psycho. It's going to your mum. He seems way more reasonable than you. You psycho. David was bitterly angry about this because although he and Laurie welcomed Cinnamon into their home at every opportunity, David never felt like he was control of his daughter's life. He was just a part-time parent, and when Brenda eventually remarried, he felt that he would be replaced altogether. <laughs> to which all I can say is excellent. As Cinnamon grew older, David attempted to win her affection by taking her on frequent trips to Disneyland, buying her anything she asked for, and allowing her to pick out on ice cream and other sweets when she stayed over. But this never felt like enough. While these actions certainly did endear him towards his daughter by making him seem like the cool parent, while Brenda was the mean, responsible parent, he always felt embittered by the fact that, as he saw it, his ex-wife had beaten him by winning primary custody. Well, David, when you showed up to your ex-wife's apartment waving a gun around and then dragged her down the street in the car I i'm not you know you did this david no one else is responsible you did this 
All of this sent David spiraling into a deep, recurring depression that would come and go in waves. These waves, each time they arrived, killed his sex drive and with it his bravado. As stated, David had always taken great pride in his ability to seduce and sleep with women, so when he lost interest in doing one of the things that he loved most in his life, he had to be hospitalized several times after multiple failed suicide attempts. During this time, Laurie stayed by his side, but like the rest of his life, their marriage was anything but perfect. Oh my god, that's really intense. You see, while David didn't yet know it, there was something about Laurie that he did not like in the slightest. David referred to be with women that he could control, and at first, Laurie had fit the bill. They'd started dating when she was only 18 and he was 21. This isn't that big of an age gap, but remember that David had been living on his own since he was 15, while Laurie was still living with her parents when they met. He had infinitely more life and relationship experience than her, which he used to his advantage to manipulate her into doing what he wanted. However, unlike Brenda, who had put up with his domineering personality for years before rebelling, Laurie was already growing stubborn after just a year together. This left David unsatisfied, and he quickly began seeing other women behind her back. When Laurie learned that she was being cheated on, she left. She didn't beat around the bush the way Brenda had, and on the 13th of October 1978, after four years together, her marriage to David formally ended. After this, David's mental health took blow after blow as he continued to struggle with various things in life. His love life was in ruins, but he was about to develop a new strategy that would take him far. While manipulation could take many forms, David was a textbook sympathetic manipulator, which means that he preferred to control people primarily by pulling at their heartstrings as opposed to something like threatening them with violence, although he did occasionally do this as well when all else failed. Sympathetic manipulation is one of the most dangerous forms of manipulation because when it's done by someone skilled in deception, there's nothing obvious about it or in your face. Oftentimes, the person being manipulated doesn't even realize it until years after the manipulation ends, until they remove themselves from the relationship. But sometimes, they never realize it at all. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, surely, there's, most of the time, if it's, like, that good, like, skilled in deception, good manipulator, like, the person will just never know. Ever. This is because the person deceiving them doesn't seem dangerous, because they purposefully present themselves as weak or vulnerable to illicit compassion. During David's relationship with Brenda, he had used his family's poverty to garner sympathy. But now that he had finally achieved moderate financial success through his new job as a data recovery technician, he couldn't rely on that anymore. It was difficult to manipulate Laurie for this reason, so after their marriage ended, he realized that he needed to alter his strategy. Starting sometime... <laughs> what? <laughs> I need to alter my strategy. David, have you tried just being a normal person, David? You weirdo. David began claiming that his health was rapidly declining, and he often told people that he didn't have long to live. To some, he claimed to have cancer, while to others, he reported a brain tumor. However, one commonality amongst all of these stories was the claim that he was gravely ill, in pain, and in need of much sympathy. Because David had always relied on his health problems to some extent to garner sympathy, his family and those closest to him rarely questioned if his self-reported illnesses were real. Poor David, they thought. Why must the good die young? But while David was perfecting his manipulation techniques, he was also selecting a new type of target, a target that would be extremely susceptible to his charm and growing persuasiveness. Children. Bro. Dude. I don't, I don't want to go there. Life with the Bailey Family Unbeknownst to Laurie, David's interest in children and teenagers began when they were still living together in a house on Randolph Street in Riverside, California. It started when he noticed a large family living two doors down from them, the Bailey family. 
The Bailey household consisted of a single mother, Ethel Bailey, and her 11 children. Good Lord. Sherry, Rick, Jeff, Tom, Pam, Linda, Alan, Randy, Larry, Ralph, and Patty. If a few of those names sound familiar to anyone, it's because several of the children were mentioned in the intro. One of the children, Linda, is David's future wife, the one who would eventually be murdered by his daughter, Cinnamon. Linda was only 13 when she met David, who was 24. Duff. According to David, when he first saw the Bailey family, it felt like deja vu. The Bailey children, who ranged in age from single digits to grown adults, were all living in poverty, and the children's father was completely absent. This was the exact same situation that Brenda had been living in when they first met, so he knew exactly how to win everyone over. David introduced himself to the Bailey family by bringing Ethel and her children a large turkey for Christmas one year. This was the first time the children had ever experienced a proper Christmas dinner because Ethel was typically too poor to afford anything fancier than rice and noodles. It was an extravagant gift for them, and the family was beyond overjoyed. Such a grand entrance was remembered for years, and after David and Laurie divorced, David became a regular visitor to the Bailey home, during which time he'd continue to shower everyone with gifts. On normal days, he would bring snacks and toys to distribute among the children, and cigarettes for Ethel and the teenagers. But that's not all. On each of the children's birthdays, he would buy them clothes, and on nights when it was obvious that the family had nothing to eat, he would pick up a stack of pizzas or a sack full of McDonald's hamburgers on his way home from work. Nobody suspected that David was a budding predator on the hunt. For a victim yeah this is so sad because it's like oh he just seems like such a nice guy and he's got a little bit of money and he's sharing the money and it's like no 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 he's wearing a mask and he's a predator and it's like oh for fuck's sake can't he just be nice <laughs> ah! as david would brag to ethan and the children many times throughout their lives he was able to afford all of these gifts because after six years working for other companies he'd finally launched his own data recovery business data recovery inc creatively named. And that business had taken off like a wildfire. David bragged that his phone's ringing off the hook from the time his shop opened until well after it closed, and if he had the desire, he could have easily found enough work to stay open 24-7. Instead, he played it smart by being selective about his clients and raising his prices to astronomical rates, which many large companies were forced to pay because there were so few options in those days. Plus, companies saw the price as somewhat reasonable because David had developed a technique that allowed him to reliably recover nearly all lost data from a faulty hard drive. Okay. Okay. So is this actually a real thing? Because he's saying this. Is this actually true? It's kind of impressive. As a result, his name spread quickly, earning him even more high-paying, big-name clients such as the US Air Force, Rockwell International, and Northrop. Jesus. This allowed him to work less while still raking in the big bucks. Unlike Arthur Brown, who was never able to find success in life, David had found his niche and capitalized on it well, and his bank account was swelling. However, David said there was another reason for his generosity. As David explained to the Bailey family, he was a dying man who had been diagnosed with late-stage colon cancer and his doctor had given him less than a year to live. The family was in need and he was in a position to help, so why wouldn't he? This was a lie, but they all believed him because, well, why wouldn't they? Yeah, it's like when someone when someone tells you something, you just assume it's the truth. Doesn't everyone just assume, unless it sounds insane, but it's like, no, I'm dying. You'd be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Because you'd be like, why the fuck would you lie about that? It's a crazy thing to lie about. The longer David knew the Baileys, the more grandiose his displays of wealth became. One year, he took the entire bunch on their first trip to Disneyland, letting them ride roller coasters and purchase souvenirs all at his expense. This was the first time any of them had ever visited somewhere so expensive, and they were all eternally grateful. In many ways, these acts made them see David as a father figure as opposed to a neighbor, which makes what he did to them next even more disturbing. Sometime around 1979, David requested help from two of the Bailey girls, 15-year-old Pamela and 13-year-old Linda. 
He said his career had progressed and he was having trouble keeping his house organized. He offered to pay the girls in cash to help him clean a few days each week. Pam and Linda, who were in no position to turn out easy money, were more than willing to help him. Because the girls were always stopping by David's home after school, they began hanging out with him, as if he was a friend their age instead of a neighbor in his mid-twenties. After they were done cleaning, the girls would watch television as David cooked for them, but some evenings, they would just go into town to eat dinner and cause mischief. On these days, David would drive the three of them around in his pickup truck, searching for people to steal from. What is going on? What, what is going on, David? What the f**k's wrong with you? Although he didn't need the money, David would off exactly would often pull up beside random unlocked cars and trucks, and if the girls jump out so they could grab everything from inside, they'd take purses, electronics, cameras, tools, and anything else they could get their hands on. David would then allow Pamina and Linda to keep these things for themselves or sell them at shady pawn shops for quick cash. Why David did this is a mystery, but it's possible that he was teaching the girls to keep secrets from their mother so they would be ready to keep a much bigger secret for him, which is known as grooming. Oh my god, that's f***ed up, David. David, you are like some like Machiavellian piece of sh**. And not in the clever way. You're just like, because it, it's just, these are just children. David, that's f***ed up. Pamela was the first Bailey girl that David chose to pursue sexually, but their time together was short because the younger girl, Linda, quickly caught his attention, as in the 13-year-old. The fuck? She was Ethel's seventh oldest child, and she had a twin brother named Alan. She was only 14 when she first requested birth control from her older sister. To win Linda over and make their relationship seem more appropriate, David had told Linda that she was special, that she was more mature than other girls her age, and that she was smarter and prettier than the rest of her sisters. He told her that they were meant to be together, and that if he lived long enough, he would someday ask her to marry him. Linda believed him, and that's how the abuse began. Not long after this, David announced that his cancer had miraculously gone into remission, making his promises and the prospect of marriage seem more than just a fantasy. They would marry soon, David told Linda in secret, and they would run away together and live in happiness forever. Linda, who was still only 15, once again believed him. However, the marriage would have to wait just a bit longer. Despite David's attempts to keep their relationship a secret, Ethel eventually learned what was happening inside David's home in the evenings and confronted him, ordering him to stay away from her daughters. She also forbade Linda from seeing David alone anymore, but this didn't go over well. Her hardline stance against the relationship caused a rift to form between her and Linda. Oh my god, can you imagine being the parent in this situation? I'd just call the police. If I found out about this, I'd just call the police. And I'd be like, yo, Linda, I'm really sorry, but you're going to thank me for this when you're older because it's f***ed up. And David's going to prison for being a word I can't say on this channel. Begins with P, ends in a far. Fucking hell. Linda soon packed her bags and left home, moving in with one of her older brothers, Rick, and his wife. She wanted to move in with David, but knew that Ethel would call the police if she did. Ethel, you should have called the police anyway. She stayed with Rick for over two years, while secretly meeting with David whenever possible. Naively, Ethel hoped that Linda's infatuation with David would blow over when she inevitably met someone her own age, but she had no idea how far David had sunk his hooks into the young girl. No matter how often the people in Linda's life tried to dissuade her, she didn't want anyone but David. Out of fear of driving her daughter away permanently, Ethel eventually relented and made peace with the situation. Jesus Christ, no, Ethel. You gotta call the police, she'll thank you for it later. And if she doesn't, it's the right thing to do, Ethel. I know this is complicated, I'm not in this situation, but I am a father of a girl, and if this was my, if this, I, I would be all, like, get down in now and arrest this f <laughs> Jesus. On the 21st of June 1979, when her daughter was 17, Ethel rode with David, Linda, and Linda's twin brother, Alan, to Las Vegas for an impromptu wedding. She gave the couple her blessing and signed the paperwork to make the marriage legal. Ugh, it's all very gross, isn't it? Life with Linda 
With a ring on her finger, Linda moved into David's home to finally begin- Oh, this is the Linda who gets killed! I'm sorry, I just picked this up. This is that Linda. Fuck. To finally begin living the life she had been promised for these years. However, her dream quickly turned into a nightmare when the marriage ended in less than two months. Yes, that's right. David kicked Linda out of his home on August the 14th, 1979. He sent her back to Ethel in tears, and by September, the divorce was finalized. David's self-reported reason for doing this was that Linda had developed a drug and alcohol addiction while living with her older brother, and she was simply too immature to be a housewife and raise children of her own. Whether or not the part about the drug problem is true is unknown. However, I can certainly believe the part about her not being ready to be a housewife and mother at 17. Yes. Yes. Shocking, isn't it? As stated, Linda was crushed by this, but David seemingly had no issue moving on. Less than a year after their divorce, David married his fourth wife, Cindy, on May the 24th, 1980. Their relationship didn't even last until Christmas, and David filed for divorce on January the 28th, 1981, eight months after the marriage began. It was so short that David couldn't even recall Cindy's last name, and I myself was unable to find it either. <laughs> The reason for this, David claimed, was that Cindy was a gold digger who had only married him for his money, and his wallet simply wasn't big enough to keep her happy, despite the fact that he was doing well for himself. Although, there could have been another reason as well, and that's David's constant and self-admitted infidelity. <laughs> I wonder if that had anything to do with it, David. All throughout David and Cindy's short marriage, David continued to sleep with other women, including his second wife, Laurie, and his third wife, Linda. He was also still involved with his first wife, Brenda, to some extent for cinnamon's sake. This presented a problem for Cindy when she eventually learned about it, so she kicked him out. After this, David invited Linda to move back in with him, saying that their separation had been a massive mistake and telling her this time they really would be together forever. Linda believed him. Oh, Linda. <laughs> He's just so manipulative. Before David's divorce from Cindy was finalized, Linda moved back into David's home. The Bailey family, particularly Linda's older sister Mary, who Linda had been living with during the separation from David, was extraordinarily upset with this decision. She said, we didn't want her to go back, but she wouldn't listen to anyone. David could make women feel important. Just the way he talked, his voice could convince you or persuade you. He could turn it on. While all of that was true, there was also much more at play. David was able to convince Linda that it was her fault their first marriage had failed. He placed all the blame on her and made her feel that she was lucky to be given a second chance. Moreover, he had convinced her that he was always right and that she was always wrong. There was no reason for her to think for herself anymore, because he could think for her. She just needed to stay quiet, be a good housewife, and submit to him sexually whenever and wherever he demanded. Then he said the marriage would succeed. David and Linda remarried at another ceremony in Las Vegas. This time, Linda was old enough to not need Ethel's permission. Soon after, the couple moved into a new home in Victoriaville, California, a town 50 miles north of Riverside on the edge of the Mojave Desert. Here, they attempted to start over, and David began working to make amends with the rest of the Bailey family, most of whom actively disliked him for what he had put Linda through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Fucking <laughs> hell. This is so f***ed up. He began purchasing everyone gifts again, and a few of Linda's siblings, including Linda's twin brother Alan, were even given jobs at his company. Linda herself became David's informal secretary. While this was happening, David and Linda invited Cinnamon, who was now 10 years old, into the home often, where David continued to present himself as the fun parent on weekends, showering her with praise and gifts. For a while, things were good, but David's constant wandering eye was about to send the entire Brown family spiralling towards disaster. So I think we, we can all admit... Wow, who would have seen this coming? Patty Bailey. 
While David and Linda's messy life together was playing out, there had been someone lurking in the background of this entire story who's about to become a major player. If you recall from the intro, there was another person inside the home when Linda was murdered. Linda's younger sister, Patty. Patty was Ethel's youngest child, and she was about 11 years old when Linda married David for the first time. She had grown up idolizing David and couldn't understand why his and Linda's relationship had been inappropriate because most of the abusive parts of their relationship had been purposefully hidden from her due to her age. In Patty's eyes, David was a good man, so she was quite jealous when he decided to marry Linda instead of her. She also often lamented how if she had only been a bit older when David moved in next door, he might have chosen to pursue her instead of Linda. <laughs> this David guy, who's been described as having an ugly face. Why does everyone want David? He's just the king of manipulation. In truth, Patty Bailey had been groomed just as Linda had. Oh, okay, yeah, it's the grooming, that's why. <laughs> It is the manipulation. It's like, why does everyone love David? Because he's an adult and they're children and he's just intellectually superior to them. So he grooms them. No. Even without sexually abusing her, David had been encouraging Patty for years to keep secrets from her mother, to see him as a provider and to protect her and to trust him wholeheartedly. Patty, who the whole family regarded as extremely suggestible, fell into David's trap even harder than Linda. Wanting to be closer to David, Patty begged him and Linda to allow her to move in with them. She said that with most of her and Linda's siblings now grown and living on their own, she was lonely at home and that Ethel had become angry and abusive towards her. Linda was hesitant, but David ran the house. He told Patty that she was more than welcome to move in with them, and in December of 1981, Patty did just that. She was 13 at the time, and David began molesting her within days of her arrival. From this point on, the small family... David, Linda, Patty, and occasionally Cinnamon moved often, always staying around Los Angeles for the sake of David's business, but they also kept to themselves. Most of their neighbors believed them to be a very close-knit bunch because they rarely, if ever, interacted with anybody besides themselves. David's parents visited often, but they were only visitors. This seclusion was intentional. David needed to keep his family isolated to control them more effectively. He then went as far as to unenroll Patty from public school and hire her a private tutor to keep her locked inside the house as much as possible. From the outside looking in, the Brown family appeared relatively normal and successful, but David's abuse of Patty continued unabated the entire time. By day, David, Linda, and Alan would repair hard drives inside David's workshop, but at night, long after Linda had gone to bed, he would slip down the halls of Patty's room. Here, he would tell her the same things he'd once told her older sister that they were meant to be together, but he said being together would take time, at least until she was 18. Until then, their relationship needed to remain a secret. It took Linda until the summer of 1983 to suspect that something was going on between David and Patty. She wasn't fully aware of the extent of the abuse or how long it had been happening, but she did know that something about the relationship wasn't proper. By then, she was pregnant with her and David's future daughter, but David seemed to prioritize spending time with Patty over caring for her. He took Patty on trips to the desert to practice her marksmanship, cruised around town with her in the passenger seat of his car, and purchased her extravagant gifts, which were all things he had once done for Linda herself. Linda's gotta be like, bro, what's going on? Or maybe not, because she's just being manipulated and she's been groomed, and she doesn't know that all of this is super fucked up. As this was happening, Linda had gained some significant weight from the pregnancy and felt completely unattractive. She saw that David no longer looked at her the way he used to, but he did look at Patty that way. She confronted her husband about her suspicions outright. Is there anything funny going on between you and Patty? David denied it, and that was the end of the conversation for a while. Later that same year, the family moved into a larger rental home on Ocean Breeze Drive to make room for the baby, but eventually, after several more months of watching David and Patty spend time together while she was cooped up inside their home, Linda had a breakdown. She ordered David to pack up Patty's belongings and drive her back to her mother's home. 
She made it clear that there was only room for one Bailey girl inside David's home and that he needed to choose who it would be, herself or Patty. At first, it seemed like David was going to choose her. He packed up Patty's things as Linda had ordered, climbed into his truck with Patty sat beside him, and set off toward Riverside. However, he had a change of heart on his way there. Somewhere along the way to Ethel's home, he pulled over to use a payphone, dialed his home's phone number, and turned the ultimatum around on Linda. He made it abundantly clear to her that either both he and Patty would return home, or neither of them would return. He said, I'm not coming back without her. That's the way it's going to be. Linda knew immediately that David was serious. That he had made his decision clear but she couldn't bring herself to let him leave he would choose patty over her if forced to and they would drive off into the night across the country to the east coast and never be seen again she would be struck raising their child all on her own she couldn't do that so she instead allowed them to both return home and stopped protesting patty's occupancy david greeted her with a kiss at the door after that tense night for some unknown reason linda soon became horribly depressed <laughs> For some unknown reason, I get the sarcasm there, is there, Matt? <laughs> Jesus. She lost weight when she should have been gaining weight for the pregnancy and started closing herself off from the rest of the family, including her twin brother, who she loved dearly. When they tried to reach out to her, she was cold, and their conversations were shallow. According to most sources, it was obvious to the rest of the Bailey family that something was going on between David and Patty. But David assured everyone that Patty simply had an adolescent crush on her older sister's husband, something that he considered to be quite common. He claimed to be innocently taking her under his wing to keep her out of trouble. It's unlikely that any of them knew the extent of what was going on, but they all had their suspicions. For now, David had managed to get everything and everyone back under his control. However, he knew that his hold over Linda was slipping, and that it was only a matter of time before, like Brenda, she would leave him. He wasn't ready to go through another divorce, especially with a newborn on the way. So he began looking for another way out. The Cinnamon Solution Linda Bailey Brown gave birth to Crystal Marie Brown on June the 20th, 1984, and David began planning a murder almost immediately after. For this, he turned to Cinnamon. Around this point in her life, Cinnamon had become an angsty teenager, and thanks to her father's lifelong manipulation, she preferred him over her mother in nearly every way. So in 1984, she moved into David's home on Ocean Breeze Drive with him, Linda, Patty, and Crystal permanently after a massive argument with her mother. Because the spare bedroom Cinnamon normally slept in had been converted into a nursery, she instead shared a room with Patty, who was only three years older than her at the time. This is when David put his plan into action. One night, David told Cinnamon in private that Linda and her twin brother Alan were plotting to kill him to steal his business and his money. He said that Linda had fallen out of love with him, which was likely true, but not for the reasons David asserted, and that if he died, she was going to steal everything, leaving her and Patty with nothing. She would then send Cinnamon back to live with Brenda, send Patty to live with Ethel, and then run the business herself and pocket all of the profits. Cinnamon was startled by this revelation and didn't take her father seriously at first. However, David made it clear that he wasn't joking around. His life was in danger, and he desperately needed her help. Cinnamon then asked David why he didn't simply call the police or divorce Linda or run away to some place safe, but David said that he couldn't do that. Even if he did everything exactly as Cinnamon suggested, Linda would find a way to kill them. She was simply that determined. As a 15-year-old girl who had been conditioned to see her father as nearly infallible, Cinnamon believed everything David told her, but she still didn't understand what she could do to help. David made it simple for her. Linda needed to die first. Cinnamon was hesitant at first, but David worked for several weeks to make the issue appear urgent. He told her that he couldn't sleep anymore out of fear that he was constantly looking over his shoulder, expecting Linda to stick a knife in his back or for Alan to wrap a rope around his neck. His hair was falling out, he told her, 
because he thought Linda might be poisoning him. How could Cinnamon not agree to help save her father's life? To plan the murder, David brought Patty in on the scream. Together, the three of them sat in private whenever possible to discuss potential plans. They talked about hitting Linda over the head with a heavy object, electrocuting her by dropping a hairdryer into the bathtub as she bathed, pushing her in front of a moving car, and much more. However, each of these proved to be either too complicated, too unreliable, or too obvious. Eventually, David declared that the only surefire way to get the job done was to shoot Linda. However, he said that he couldn't be the one to do it because the police would suspect him first and foremost. They would send him to prison forever, even if he explained that killing Linda had been a form of get her before she gets me self-defense. Instead, David suggested that Cinnamon would be the best person to get the job done because, according to him, she wouldn't be arrested because of her age. <laughs> How'd that work out? The police would merely take her to a hospital for a psych evaluation and then she'd be sent home. It would be so easy, David assured her, and Cinnamon believed him. However, she still couldn't imagine pulling the trigger herself. To apply even more pressure, David told her, If you really loved me, you would do this for me. And daughters who love their daddies do things like this for them, to protect them. Although most adults can recognize these statements as little more than juvenile manipulation tactics, they worked wonders on Cinnamon. As this planning was occurring in secret, Cinnamon became cold and distant toward Linda, which is why she moved into the backyard trailer that the family typically only used for camping. She needed space to think, a space away from Linda, away from David, away from Patty, and away from everyone else in her life. Eventually, she told her father that she would do it, if she had to. David assured her that she absolutely did, and a plan was quickly formulated. One night, while Linda slept, David would leave the house to establish an alibi, while Cinnamon and Patty stayed behind. Patty would be responsible for making sure baby Crystal was safe while Cinnamon carried out the murder. Cinnamon would use one of David's revolvers, the one he had used to threaten Brenda with years earlier, to shoot Linda in the chest as she slept. Then, after Cinnamon and Patty were sure Linda was dead, Cinnamon would ingest enough pills to knock herself out, exit the home through the back door, and crawl into the family's doghouse to hide. With a fake suicide note in her hand, Cinnamon would turn the revolver in herself. She would fire a single shot at the side of her head, just close enough to graze her scalp and make the suicide attempts appear even more realistic. When David returned home, he would call the police himself. Wait, so how did the other person... Because she didn't she attempt to shoot someone first in the bed and missed? Who was that? Was that the other woman, Patty? After this, once Cinnamon was discovered, she would be taken to a psychiatric hospital for treatment, where she would tell her counselors that she had killed Linda because Linda was abusive towards her. David and Patty would confirm her story, and Cinnamon would then quickly be released. And just like that, the plan was finished. Cinnamon was still hesitant, but David and Patty assured her that it would work. She had no idea that she was being lied to, or that those lies went even deeper. Unbeknownst to Cinnamon, David had another plan that he was keeping from her. You see, David knew that Cinnamon would not simply be released after killing her stepmother, and he couldn't take the risk of her revealing their plan once he was arrested. For this reason, he fully intended Cinnamon to die as well. Instead of giving her just enough pills to knock her out, he planned to give her a lethal dose to ensure that she died long before just being discovered. This is your daughter, you fucking psycho. I know, I don't, I, it's just David doesn't, he's just like totally psychopathic, right? He just has no, he just has no emotions. He surely can't. Telling her to graze the side of her own head with a bullet was a backup plan. He believed that Cinnamon would accidentally shoot herself square in the head by mistake. In short, the real plan was for Linda and Cinnamon to die so that David and Patty could take Crystal and run away together. Whether or not Patty was fully aware of this part of the plan, or if, like Cinnamon, she legitimately believed Linda intended to kill David, is unknown. In preparation, David took out a $100,000 life insurance policy on Linda with National Life, which included a double indemnity course, meaning that the policy would pay out double if the death was the result of an accident. 
The term accident included murder, so long as the murderer was not the beneficiary or in collusion with the beneficiary. He then immediately did the same with another insurance company, New York Life, for the same amount with the same stipulation. Then he took out a third policy with Capital Life for $200,000 along with a $150,000 accidental death course. This totaled $750,000 and David was in the process of taking out a fourth policy with Liberty Life for an additional $200,000, but he would never get the chance to sign the paperwork. Linda, he feared, was very close to leaving him. The timeline of the plan needed to be accelerated. This is, I don't understand how this isn't just insanely suspicious. You're taking out four life insurance policies that benefit you, and then the person dies. It's like, why? Why? What? what it, it, that's crazy. On the night of March the 18th, 1985, David crept into Cinnamon's trailer while she was sound asleep and jostled her awake. He told her it was time and presented her with a revolver, a glass of water, and a large handful of pills. He coached her on how to write the suicide note. Inside the home, Patty was standing by to assist Cinnamon when she was ready. As David was leaving, he reiterated one last desperate plea. He used the same phrase that he often used. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. But if you love me, you will do it. After this, David headed to the Circle K convenience store to establish his alibi. He wasn't sure if Cinnamon would go through with it, but he stayed long enough to give her plenty of time. Back inside the home, Cinnamon and Patty entered Linda's bedroom. Patty held Crystal in her arms as Cinnamon grabbed a pillow to use as a makeshift silencer. She pressed the gun to Linda's chest and pulled the trigger. Then she pulled it again. The second shot was the one that killed her. Cinnamon dropped the revolver on the ground, where she stood, forgetting entirely that she was supposed to shoot herself in the side of the head. She exited the home with the note in her hand, hid inside the doghouse, and swallowed the pills. David returned home shortly after to find that his plan had worked. Linda was dead and Patty was standing by with Crystal safely in her arms. All he needed to do was call the police, play the part of the grieving husband, and wait for Cinnamon's body to be found. The only problem was, as we all know, Cinnamon survived. Life with Patty When David learned that Cinnamon was recovering in hospital, he assumed that she would tell the police everything when she was able, but she didn't. Despite being taken into custody, Cinnamon refused to tell the police anything. She feigned amnesia and said that she simply couldn't remember anything about the night her stepmother died. After she was stabilized, David requested to meet with Cinnamon as soon as possible. She was a minor, and he was her father. He had legal rights. While alone, David urged Cinnamon to keep doing exactly what she was doing. He said that even though the police had decided to charge her, the judge would be lenient if she continued to assert that she couldn't remember what she'd done. He said that she would only be given a slap on the wrist and sent home. <laughs> Bro, she got like 27 years. However, David knew this wasn't true either. His new plan was to have Cinnamon sent away for life so that she'd never be able to tell her story. He believed that even if she did eventually reveal the truth about Linda's murder, nobody would believe her after she was convicted. At her trial, which began on the 7th of August 1985 inside the Orange County Juvenile Courthouse in Santa Ana, California, Cinnamon was brought before Judge Robert Fitzgerald. There was no jury because, per the law, judges decided all juvenile cases in California. Cinnamon's attorney, which David paid for himself out of his own pocket, assisted her in entering a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Cinnamon did not testify in her own defense and instead chose to continue to feign amnesia as David had suggested. The trial only lasted five days, and David was not present for any of them. He claimed to once again be on death's door and was allowed to have his testimony be entered into the record via a proxy. Patty did testify. However, both hers and David's written statements worked against Cinnamon. They both stuck to their story that she had acted alone. Judge Fitzgerald read his verdict on the 12th of August, 1985. Guilty. David was in the courtroom for Cinnamon's sentencing, but he barely acknowledged her as she was given a 27-year sentence. Cinnamon was led away in tears, unable to believe what she had just heard. 
David and Patty returned home together to their brand new home. Yet although Cinnamon was completely unaware of what her father had done, David had collected on Linda's many life insurance payouts just days after her death, and he had used these funds to purchase a new home for himself in Anaheim Hills for $330,000 in cash. He also purchased several other residential properties in California to rent out and collect an easy passive income. He was also still performing hard drive repair, only now he had a new partner in more ways than one. In record time, Patty began to fill Linda's shoes, literally. Just weeks after the murder, Patty started handling the housework in Linda's absence, caring for baby Crystal's needs in Linda's place, answering calls for David's business the way Linda had, and yes, even wearing Linda's clothes. Patty took over every aspect of her deceased sister's life. She even went so far as to cut or remove all the pictures of Linda from the picture frames in their home, replacing them with her own photo like a psycho. Oh my god, that is psycho. <laughs> Matt wrote that like a psycho. And it's like, that's exactly what I would say. That is so psycho. Like, when you see a horror movie and someone's face is scratched out in the photos, you're like, whoever did that's a psycho. <laughs> like, what the fuck? When David visited Cinnamon after her conviction, he did not tell her about his and Patty's relationship. Instead, he apologized to her, claiming that he never imagined she would be given such a lengthy sentence and assuring her that he was doing everything in his power to appeal her conviction. In reality, he wasn't doing anything. He also promised Cinnamon that he would visit her often, but this turned out to be a lie as well. Slowly as the months dragged on, David's visits became fewer and fewer until they stopped entirely. He explained his absence away by claiming that he was once again gravely ill. After this, he stopped answering her calls as well. In 1987, David and Patty welcomed their first child, a baby girl named Heather. Although, to keep hiding their relationship, David instructed Patty to tell Cinnamon that she wasn't sure who the father was. Patty even put a random name on Heather's birth certificate, claiming that the child's father was a stranger she had met for a one-night stand. Both David and Patty intended to keep this straight up indefinitely, hoping that Cinnamon would eventually settle into prison life and stop reaching out to them. However, Cinnamon's time behind bars had given her a harsh dose of reality and her once naive mind had been forced to mature quickly. Sitting alone inside her jail cell with nothing but time on her hands, Cinnamon began to piece together that she had been tricked. And when she turned 18 years old, she received the call that a potential to change everything. The Sting Simon! On the off chance you've been eagerly waiting for a hero in our story to emerge, always, there's a lack of good guys in today's story. I want that kind of cop who finds things a bit suspicious and he digs into it. He's like, oh my lord, let's get David. <laughs> Strap him in the chair! And by the chair, I mean electric chair, so he can flip that switch and execute him. Yes! I mean, like, he's not really directly murdered anyone, but he also has. And also... It, like, the world would just be better off without him. David's one of these people you'd just be like, yeah, yeah, the world would be better. It would just be much better if David didn't exist. Because he's a piece of shit. In my opinion. Allegedly. Well, wait no longer because he's officially arrived. In 1988, Cinnamon received a call from a man named Jay Newell, an investigator of the Orange County DA's office. Newell had been involved in the investigation into Linda Bailey Brown's murder from the very beginning. He had interviewed David and Patty himself, spoken with countless other members of both the Brown and Bailey families, and even been in court during Cinnamon's trial. His work played a key role in putting her behind bars. However, he had long suspected that something about the case was off, yet he could never imagine how deep that rabbit hole went. Yeah, he's probably like, he's got those David's a bad dude vibes, right? Because David's a bad dude. You really like David's... <laughs> Something's wrong with you, David. I can smell your psychopathy. 
To start with, while interviewing David directly after the murder, Newell had found David's recollection of Linda's murder to be suspicious because David seemed to remember everything about that night, right down to the tiniest details that most people would never remember. And even when repeating his story days or weeks after the fact, he easily recalled almost all of those same details, oftentimes reciting them in the same order, while sometimes placing inflection on the same words as if he were telling a well-rehearsed story. David, for someone who's good at manipulation, that's not very skilled. Like, you need to make intentional and very minor mistakes. You know, really? Or have I just read so much true crime that I know that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you want it to be completely believable, but also not too perfect. Because too perfect is suspicious. Also, while looking into the family's phone records, Newell had realized that David had called his father directly before dialing 911 on the night of the murder, which is obviously not something he would do if he believed his wife may still be alive and in need of assistance. What he and Arthur discussed on this call is unknown, but it still stood out as massively suspicious. Furthermore, when speaking to the rest of Cinnamon's family, friends, and school teachers, Newell discovered that David had been manipulating people's witness statements by instructing members of the family, including Cinnamon's mother Brenda and one of his sisters Susan, to describe Cinnamon as dangerous and suicidal. He wanted their recollections of Cinnamon's behavioral issues to match his and Patty's. He wanted the police to believe that she was a violent delinquent that was on the verge of a breakdown. However, Cinnamon's school counselor, had told Newell that Cinnamon was a good girl who'd only ever been sent to the principal's office twice, once for minor truancy and again for getting into antics during class on Halloween. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't know, I feel like I was a pretty good kid at school. I was definitely sent to the principal's office at least a couple of times. <laughs> or like, it wasn't the principal or like headmaster, it's usually the deputy headmaster who'd be the one responsible for discipline. He was like, I don't know if it's different in American schools or whether it's different in my school, but the deputy, the headmaster's kind of just like, sits at the head of school and like runs things or what's the headmaster actually do because the deputy head was the one who was kind of responsible for logistics and discipline and stuff so if you got sent to the deputy head's office that was usually more serious if you're getting sent to the headmaster's office it was either incredibly serious or you had actually done something good <laughs> it'd be like telling you how good you were or some shit like that her home economics teacher even went so far to say as she was a sweet girl because she'd taken time to befriend a blind girl who had transferred into her class during the middle of the school year that's nice that's exactly the sort of kid that I want to raise. Like, when I see my kid do something like this, I'm always like, praise them. You're always like, if they do something nice, it's always just praise them, kind of like ingrain that good behavior in them. Because that's exactly the sort of like, that's exactly the sort of person I want to raise. Like someone who does something like that. Newell had found all of this highly concerning, but the evidence against Cinnamon had seemed so airtight that he started to believe he was grasping at straws. Because Cinnamon was also refusing to aid in her own defense at trial, there was nothing he could do to help her. However, even after the trial was over, Newell had continued to watch her and her family closely from afar. This is when he had learned about Linda's multiple insurance policies. Oh yes, let's go! Which encouraged him to keep digging. When he discovered, it'd just be like, phone the insurance company and be like, yo, boys, did you notice this? You guys should get together and get some money together and hire some private detectives. I'll also help and we'll get to the bottom of this. And those insurance companies will be like, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> that sounds good. Let's get some of our money back. When he discovered what David had done with the money from those payouts, purchasing a home for himself and his deceased wife's underage sister just a few months after the murder, alarm bells started absolutely blaring inside his head. Excellent. Come on, you legends, let's get it sorted. This knowledge had weighed heavily on Newell's mind ever since the murder, but there was something else about David that gave him an eerie feeling. 
Early in his career, Neuel had been in charge of guarding Charles Manson inside the Hall of Justice jail in Los Angeles, California. Seeing how the former cult leader behaved when incarcerated had given him an insight into the mind of a manipulator and allowed him to see firsthand how people like Manson interacted with and effectively controlled those around him. Yeah, this dude has those, like, he's a psycho vibes. Like, when I was reading the introduction, you're like, this is David guy. This is David guy. It's this day David guy. Is the David guy. And this guy's got it as well. I mean, I also know it because it's true crime. Like, I'm not saying that I would ever be able to tell like this guy did because like he has way more experience in this shit. And I'm reading a true crime thing where I'm on the lookout for a bad guy. So this is way more impressive. But it's also like he gets those vibes. I think police must get vibes like this a lot, right? They get they get the like, <laughs> dude's a psycho vibes. Find him. What's he done? He's done something. Let's find what it is. Manson had never killed anyone with his own hands because he didn't need to. In that way, Newell thought that David and Manson were the same. Both were charismatic, insightful, and fully capable of bending those around him to their will. As we know, Newell's instincts were spot on. Because of this, Newell had wanted to contact Cinnamon for years, but he felt that doing so would be inappropriate because she was still a minor and her case was closed. However, as soon as she turned 18, he began making regular calls to her. When he told Cinnamon about David and Patty's marriage and child, about the insurance payouts, and about how David was pretending to be ill to avoid her, she broke down into tears and hung up the phone. That night, Cinnamon recalled how, years ago, long before the murder, she had once stumbled upon David and Patty kissing one another passionately in the aisle of a grocery store when they both believed they were alone. When David realized they had been spotted, he assured Cinnamon that this kiss was just an innocent, friendly kiss, and Cinnamon had made herself believe him at the time. Bruh. <laughs> It was just an in innocent, friendly kiss with some tongue. Dude. But now she couldn't deny what she'd seen. Once she came to terms with the fact that Newell was telling her the truth, she called him back. They began working together to formulate a plan of their own. On August the 13th, 1988, Cinnamon called David and convinced him to sit down with her for a visitation by claiming that she planned to tell the police everything. She wore a wire for this visit and attempted to make David speak plainly about the details of the murder. She asked him, why can't you just tell the truth? To this, David replied, You could tell the police the truth if you don't tell them the whole truth, okay? Because then we all go to jail. David, 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 David. <laughs> what are you doing? After this, the wire captured audio of David speaking about the medicine he had given Cinnamon for a supposed fake suicide attempt. At the end of the day, this recording wasn't a full confession, but Newell was thrilled to hear it because the things David implied during the conversation were more than enough to formally reopen the case. When combined with the rest of the evidence and statements Newell had collected throughout the years, prosecutors believed they had enough to bring forth new charges. At 6am on September 22, 1988, three weeks after David and Cinnamon's recorded meeting, David and Patty Brown were both arrested inside the Anaheim Hills home and charged with orchestrating the murder of Linda Bailey Brown. Excellent. Although Patty's also, she's just, she's also just a manipulated person in this. Like, I don't believe, like, Patty's, she's just been groomed the shit out of by David and should definitely not get in trouble for this because David's the psycho. David is the fucking Charles Manson piece of shit. One final desperate plan. Now, well, it should be time for me to begin wrapping up this episode, we're not quite finished yet. And that's because David himself was not quite ready to throw in the towel even after the details of his manipulation were made public. 
While imprisoned, David approached one of his fellow inmates, a man named Richard Steinhardt, who was about to be released after serving a lengthy sentence for distribution of narcotics. As David had been informed, Richard was a military veteran and hand-to-hand martial arts specialist who had been a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. More recently, however, Steinhardt had also been an enforcer for a notorious West Coast motorcycle gang that was known for breaking legs. He was also the type of person that criminals went to when they needed to make people disappear. People like the DA in charge of David's case, Jeffrey Robinson, and the pesky investigator who had helped expose his crimes, Jay Newell. Bro, are you trying to get the DA killed on your case? That is gonna... Dude, that's very, very serious. David believed that with these men dead, the case against him would be much harder to prove, and other Orange County DAs would be less inclined to pursue the case after seeing that David had developed gang connections. Going after these two important men was bold. Yeah, no shit. But David's boldness didn't stop there. When he learns that Patsy, who was imprisoned nearby in a separate women's-only facility, planned to testify against him for a reduced sentence, he added her name to the list of targets as well, partially to silence her, but also for revenge. Good lord. David approached Steinhardt with a very simple plan. Upon being released from prison, Steinhardt and his gang would kidnap Jeffrey Robinson and Jay Newell, drive them out of the desert, and then kill them both execution-style. Then they would arrange to have Patty killed by another hitman, Doreen Pietro, who Steinhardt said would be willing to allow herself to be arrested to gain access to Patty. After this, Steinhardt would help David escape from prison, which David assured him could be done quite easily because he already had a plan worked out for this as well. You see, David was scheduled to have some major dental work done to alleviate pain he was having in his jaw. However, since the prison he was housed in relied on outside dentists to perform all major surgeries, David knew that he would have to be transported to a nearby dental office for the work to be performed. This is when he planned to have Steinhardt follow his prison transport van, enter the dental office alongside him wearing a disguise, ambush the officers escorting him, and then free him so that they could flee to a safe house that David had on standby. As compensation, David offered to pay Steinhardt $30,000 for all three hits, $10,000 each, but he also said that he could sweeten the deal by leading Steinhardt to a $500,000 money stash that had buried in the desert for emergencies after the escape was completed. David said that Steinock could take $200,000 of it for himself when everything was over. David would then use the rest of the money to flee to Mexico and start a new life. Does he really have $500,000 buried in the desert? I kind of don't believe it, but also maybe he does because he was making quite a bit of money. And if you are like committing these very, very serious crimes, it does seem to make sense to have money buried somewhere for emergencies. That seems like a pretty good idea. It was a complicated plan with many, many moving parts and countless unknowns, such as when David would be leaving for the dentist's office, how many guards would be transporting him, who else would be inside the office with him, and much, much more. But David was confident, nonetheless, that he could pull it off, and Steinhardt agreed. Once the biker was released from prison, David contacted him dozens of times over the prison's telephone to work out the finer details. They spoke in coded language to hide the true nature of their calls. To get the whole process started, David authorized his attorney to withdraw money from his bank account to give to his brother, Tom. He then funneled this cash to Steinhardt so that he could get started. Neither of the men knew what the cash was for, only that it was important. On February the 13th, 1988, Steinhardt called David to inform him that the plan had been a success. He said, bang, bang, right in the back of the head. David, pulling the handset closer to his mouth and speaking quietly as not to be overheard, wonderful, you're a good man, you did great. Couple of things here. Bang, bang, right in the back of the head. Is that coded language? If so, it's not very coded, is it? (laughs) And also, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll just whisper on the phone so people won't hear. It's like, bro, you think this is not being recorded? You're in prison, bro. Unless you're on the phone with your lawyer, they're recording that shit. Giddy as a schoolgirl, David then hung up the phone and called his brother Tom to have the remainder of the funds handed over. He then returned to his cell to put his feet up and relax, assured for the first time since his arrest that he would be fine. 
He had just orchestrated the perfect hit. However, his piece was short-lived because not everything was as it seemed. Yeah, Steinar's not a good anyone, has he? <laughs> He's just been like, yeah, 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 no. No, I took the money and I, I, I left and you're going to be in prison forever. So, ah, f*** you. Firstly, not only had all the calls between him and Steinar been recorded, because of course all prison calls are recorded, thank you, but neither Jeffrey Robinson nor Jay Newell are actually dead because unbeknownst to David, Steinar had been working with the police since the very beginning. All of their conversations had been recorded. The money David had funneled to Steinhardt was in the police's hands, and Steinhardt was willing to testify against David at trial. David, you've been like, I'm so smart. I'm so smart. I've figured it all out. And it's like, you're so fucked. You're going to prison, or you're going to get death. You're going to get death. Strap him to the chair. Strap him to the chair. Steinhardt's reason for backing out of the deal, other than the fact that David's plan was ludicrous, was that he learned how David had targeted both Linda and Patty when they were both underage, and he had no love for Chomos. What's chomos? What is that? Chomos. Gonna look that up. I guess it means, like, P-word. I can't say. Okay. Needless to say, David wasn't getting busted out anytime soon. A short time later, new charges for conspiracy to commit murder and perjury were added to David's already lengthy list of charges. When David's lawyer learns what he had been unwillingly tricked into participating in, he declared a conflict of interest and was replaced. David's phone privileges were also revoked. Good idea. Justice. In 1992, David Arnold Brown was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for his role in Linda Bailey's Brown's murder. Oh, come on. It's Cal oh, California's like, they don't have that death penalty, do they? Oh, that's a shame. I wish this was happening in like Alabama or something. They'd just be like, yeah, yeah, kill him, kill him, firing squad, boys, let's go. He was also given an additional six years in prison after pleading guilty to conspiring to have Jeffrey Robinson, Jane Newell, and Patty Brown murdered. Patty Brown pled guilty, but because she had testified against David at his trial and because she was a minor herself at the time of the murder, she was given a reduced sentence. She was released after spending only a few years in prison, at which time she changed her name, remarried, and has reportedly gone on to live a relatively normal life. Excellent, that's exactly the sort of outcome I'd want for you. In early 1992, after seven full years in prison, Cinnamon Brown was released when California Youth Authority voted to grant her early parole in a two-to-one vote. Considering the circumstances, they said it was time that she be given a second chance. Jane Newell picked her up from prison himself and used his own money to help her get back on her feet. Jane Newell, you legend. Respect. As of September 2023, she still lives in Orange County, California. David Brown died alone in prison in March of 2014 after serving 26 years behind bars. Oh no! Oh, what a shame! <laughs> Dismembered appendices. Number one, author Anne Rule, who I mentioned earlier in this episode, was instrumental in spreading Cinnamon's story in order to help her obtain early release. Her book, If You Really Love Me, was published directly after David's conviction and detailed Cinnamon and Jane Newell's fight for her justice, stirring up much support for her in the media. Anne herself even went on numerous talk shows, including the Oprah Winfrey show, to drum up even more support. Another legend from this episode, Anne Rule and Jane Newell, you're today's legends. Well done. In 1991, a movie based on Linda's death titled Love, Lies and Murder was released. It received middling praise, but I've been told that it's actually quite entertaining in a cheesy made-for-TV sort of way. Check it out if you'd like to. Number three. Lastly, I'd like to offer special thanks to Twitter user Klaatu82 for suggesting this incredible story. I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into and I agreed to take a look. So thanks. And that's where we end today's episode. Thanks so much for being here. If you like it, please leave a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, hello, like, subscribe. And I'll see you next time.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.